Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Garolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com. Diodora, the brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg and currently worn by world number 28, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, is the official shoe of the podcast. See them at Diodora.com. Once again, we have a very special show for you today. Just this past Saturday, we hosted 14 people for a 90-minute practice, followed by a free-flowing, one-hour, no-holds-barred Q&A with the legendary Ivan Lendl at the Royal Palm Tennis Club in Miami, Florida. And this is the IFO memo recording of the Q&A. Please excuse the sound quality. This recording begins as Ivan discusses his participation in the 1977 Orange Bowl. This was an amazing chat. Then the following year, I beat Yannick Noah in the finals at, uh, at Flamingo Park. Score? 4-6-7-6-6-3 or 3-6-7-6-6-4, one or the other. How was the quality of the clay? Was it very... Uh... It was very good. I, I don't... Anybody knows where Flamingo Park is? Yeah. yeah. Have you been there? Very yeah. Good. Have you ever looked at that plaque outside of the pro shop? No. Have a look. There, there is a plaque with all the winners. It's, uh, it's South Miami Beach. Famous. It, it's amazing. Club. They have done renovation to the club and uh, to the courts and all that. And the names on that are amazing. Who won Orange Bowl? Goes all the way to the 50s. Orange Bowl, unlike now, used to be bigger than any of the majors for juniors. That was the biggest tournament in the world. It was a nice clay. It was on hard through, yes. I played, I played at Flamingo Park when I played Orange Bowl as well. Yeah. I mean, well, it, it was to, amazing uh, who played. And uh, and they put stands around the, the They put stands court. around. Uh, it was a real big probably, thing. Yeah. No, it was awesome. Probably held three, 4,000 people. It was always pretty well attended. And, uh, and Such a nice place to play. Yeah. It sounded um, like a war with Noah. It always was. We're, we're pretty much the same age. Um, I think I may be one or two months older than Yannick. And we know each other since we were 14. And uh, we, we, he was beating me earlier on because he was much stronger physically than me. And uh, then I finally filled in a little bit and uh, could hold, hold of his power. Now, do you keep your eye on junior tennis at all now? Are you, when you're at the majors, do you ever take a look at, do you, do you hear things about the juniors? Well, I haven't been anywhere for three years because uh, I couldn't fly. And so I was at Wimbledon and US Open were the first two majors. Uh, first two majors I have seen but uh, I was working with Andy so I was too busy do you um... I do see juniors though quite a bit when we train because we bring juniors for training do you have any interest any advice for you know the kids that are like you know kind of trying to become elite 12s 14s is it, is it different now than it was no, 30 it's years always, ago always the same work hard and have fun and what about um the UTR ratings and the ratings and, and, and the cheating that goes on in junior tennis? Well, Mark, Mark Lashley, who is uh, one of the guys who started UTR, is a friend of mine, but uh, I hate to admit I don't know much about UTR. I think it's a good concept, but if you ask me to explain it, I, I just couldn't. 
but uh, it probably matches people quite well who can play with home and have good games because uh, it doesn't make sense if somebody is uh, going to beat somebody 6-0-6-0 to play again the next day, right? You don't get better that way and uh, the person losing is not going to stick with the game too long. You said on my show that you you had a breakthrough where you started to be able to come over your backhand, but until then you were losing to a certain level. Well, How do you... I, I wasn't losing. I was still number one junior in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you. I was fine. <laughs> but you were serving and volleying and playing different. I, I had to avoid people or prevent people from coming to the net on my backhand because I didn't have any backhand topspin, even though we worked on it. And the breakthrough was when it happened, and it literally happened overnight, that I was able to hit over the backhand, and instead of a weakness, it became a weapon. And then... I changed my style because I could figure out the percentages I'm much better off when uh, I'm staying back and just harass the opponent from side to side until they don't want to play anymore. Wait, so <laughs> were you slicing your backhand? I was slicing my backhand. Oh, okay. yeah. What age was this? 18. Yeah. What was the breakthrough? A feeling or a mental thing or something? It just happened overnight. We worked on it uh, with our coaches for maybe two years every day. What does it take to have that? I don't know. I can't explain that uh, too many. It can happen two ways. It happens slowly or it just happens like it happened to me. And I assume I could do it in practice. And I assume it was in the match. It all of a sudden happened and gave me the confidence to do it. Uh, some of it may have been also with uh, changing the rockets to more powerful racket from a wooden racket. So I could really hurt them with the backhand. And uh, they were they were uh, faster. You could spin it more, and uh, all of a sudden, instead of slicing, I could hit winners from the backcourt. Is a two-handed backhand better than a one-handed backhand today? Hundred percent. Why? Uh, you don't need that long of a backswing, so you can return better. Uh, you can absorb power better. You can uh, you can use the left hand to create more angles. You can uh, you can take a high bouncing ball, take it early, and uh, let's say. I play against a two-handed backhand and I'm running them, running them, running them and then I finally get them to the backhand where they loop it on the service line and goes to my backhand. I can't go there and take it right here above the shoulders. I have to start the point over as the two-handed will come there, knock it down the line and point this over. Questions? Come on. Who's got it? Davidson, you got something? How did you deal with cheers when you were like 12? Well, we didn't have cheaters. <laughs> And I tell you why, we had a very different system where loser of the match had to stay on that court and empire the next match. Which is great because, first of all, there is no cheating then. Because if you cheat me as the empire, eventually I'm going to get you on the court too. When I'm the empire and I'm going to remember you. Okay? And uh, secondly, it's also good because you can learn a lot by watching. So that was a brilliant system in that. So we didn't have that. We didn't call our own lines. Uh, how, how, how did you turn things around against McEnroe? Was it just the 84 French? Or was it like long time coming because it got Well, he was clearly dominating in 84 and 85. And uh, 84 is the best year in history. 82. The only guy he lost to was him. 80, I think he was 80-3, and three, or he won a huge amount of Yeah, tennis. I think he lost three times. I'm not sure who were the other guys. Uh, 
Yeah. He, he lost to me and maybe somebody else. He lost the French Open final, and that yeah. was his great year. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, probably was coming, the turnaround, because I was still getting better. And uh, then uh, I changed coaches. I sat with a couple of friends of mine, and we talked about what my weaknesses are. And then uh, with Tony Roach, he was able to give me insight into left-handers thinking. We didn't have one left-hander in our club when I was growing up. I hated playing against left-handers. And uh, then we made Sorry. a plan. Sorry, do you guys know who Tony Roach is? Tony Roach, the famous Australian player, Hall of Famer. Yeah. Wasn't he a lefty also? Yeah, he, that's, why, that's why he could give me the insight into their thinking. As a left-hander, when I do this and you do that, we hate it. Or don't do that, that's, we're waiting for that. And uh, so then we sat down and made a plan what I need to do because my biggest competition at the end of 84 was Connors, McEnroe, Vilas, Leconte, Gomez. Five left-handers in top ten. Yeah, not, not, not a pretty picture. Wow. <laughs> so uh, we made a plan what I need to improve to basically deal with Connors and McEnroe and it would help with the other system. How well. is it how do you deal with a lefty if you're if you're uncomfortable? What is the how do you get your head spun well, around? Well, first thing we did was every time we were on the court together he would serve some. Yeah. Uh, get serve. Used, get used serve. to the lefty serve. Second, whenever I was doing training blocks and I could get a left-hander to practice with, I would. So you get used to it so it's not that strange or that foreign to you. And uh, it's just common sense. That's all. Next question, Jay. Did you try and get McEnroe locked into a baseline battle? Or if I could. If I could, and uh, I would even come forward. That was part of it. Uh, the worst thing I could do is just rally with him where he can choose when he comes in. If I rally with him where I'm pushing him or I threaten to come in, he will come in on some shots where he shouldn't come in and then the pass is there. So by being more aggressive, I forced him being more aggressive in some ways. And he wasn't that, that, I mean, he was still great at it, but he dropped a little bit off because he would come on a ball which was too deep. And he would come in and I had angles and so on and so on. So by being more aggressive, I forced his hand to push a little harder. What was the, what was the atmosphere like in the locker rooms those, those second weeks? Normal. Are you guys friends off the court? You always have friends. You have uh, guys you talk to. You have guys you don't like. Uh, just like everywhere else, it's nothing unusual. Now, is it true that, you, that um, the year Gomez won the French Open and he beat Andre, you had had uh, dinner, you guys were out to dinner in Tokyo and you said, listen, I don't think I'm going to play. I'm not going to. And he, he, he said, I don't think I'm going to play to get ready for Wimbledon. Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly I was uh, not going to play, and then he won, and he, he actually, Andres and I were good friends, he was saying, yeah, last three times I lost to you in the quarterfinals, so this time he didn't play, I was able to win. <laughs> question, come on. I have a question about the misquote that I was kind of asking yeah. about earlier. You know, uh, I'm referring to, he's like kind of famously quoting for saying that... Um, You're allergic to grass. Yeah, yeah, he's allergic to grass. So... I, was, I chose not to play Wimbledon because it was a big effort for me to get ready for the grass and took a long, uh, long time to prepare and still wasn't doing that great. Had a bad loss the year before 
and uh, I, I had heavy schedule, so I took a month off, basically not playing competitive tennis and just was home in Greenwich, Connecticut training. And uh, I, I'm an allergy sufferer. And, um, and I was uh, playing a pro-am at Westchester Country Club for the PGA Tour with a guy called Scott Simpson, and they're very reporters there. And they said, you're not at Wimbledon? I said, no. And then I must have sneezed, and oh, you have allergies? I said, yeah, I have allergies. What are you allergic to? I'm allergic to grasses. Oh. So I, I didn't play Wimbledon because I'm allergic to grass, according to them. <laughs> Media. Yeah. Even then, yes. Who was your favorite player to play against? Anybody I could beat. <laughs> well, you beat Brad Gilbert like 14 times? Probably 14 more than that. More than that. Do you know who you beat up on the most? Was it him? Uh, probably would be between him and uh, Tim Mayot. Do you know what your record was with Mayot? <laughs> with Mayot? Yeah. It would be close to Gilbert's. Like 18 and 0 or 16, 17, something 16, like that. 16, 17 yeah. and 0. Yeah. Peter, I saw you put your hand up. Yeah, no, just going off the media things, I, I like to think of like eras and stuff and just like you're coming from the Czech and then it's still the Cold War backdrop and all this stuff. And uh, this comes also with assistance from my Serbian dad, this question. But did you feel like the crowds, just because of the era and the time, like coming to the U.S. Open the first time or uh, French Open, that there was kind of this east-west that you weren't kind of given? I, I think there was cer certain element of that, yeah. Um, I mean, I never really worried about it too much. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure there were people because people didn't know the difference between Czechoslovakia and Soviet Union. Yeah. yeah. So... Your best you endorsement go. deal. Well, I think you have to go to Adidas and Mizuno. We had uh, we had great long-term uh, association between Adidas and uh, myself and the Mizuno myself, and uh, those are two two big companies which uh, which everybody recognizes. Uh, I think Mizuno at that time was the biggest sports goods company in the world, bigger than Nike or anyone else. They had 50,000 different products. And what do they call that, the Falcon? What is that shirt? You had, you had like a dragon oh, on the it? the Eagle. Or? Oh, Eagle. Eagle yeah. What is it, like the War Eagle? No, it, more like Bald Eagle. <laughs> Bald Eagle. <laughs> you know what those are stand for, don't you? Bald Eagles. What? Freedom. America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's from California, what do yeah, you expect? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There. Who's got a hand up? I saw him. Any, anybody sp still speaks English in California? Christian. Yeah. <laughs> as, as a German, I gotta ask uh, playing Becker, what was, what was tough about it? What did you think you had to Well, the, the, there were a few challenges playing Boris. He was very powerful. So he could control the points. Nobody likes to have the opponent control the points, right? And the second thing is that Boris was hot and cold. And uh, I, I got to play him always towards the end of the tournaments. If he was cold, he would have bad losses early at times. But if he was on, now you're playing him at his best. So I always played Boris when he was pretty close to his best. So that was difficult. Do you have a friendship with him now? Uh, we never really knew each other that well. Really? Yeah. So you didn't visit him in jail? He, he's out. He's out. He's out. Yeah. You did not have a relationship with him. No, we didn't. We never played doubles. A guy called Bill Scanlon, who unfortunately passed, passed away, away over a year ago. Bill and I were uh, very close, and uh, 
guy called Christoph Andrensberg, uh, South African. Um, Andres Gomez uh, was fairly close to Brad. Brad would come and uh, practice at my house uh, in, uh, in Connecticut. Uh, we spent a lot of time training. Why haven't you broadcasted? Didn't like it. Just too much sitting. Uh, wasn't for me. Do you enjoy coaching Andy? Yeah. So, so uh, yeah. next week you're going where? Australia. Yeah. What do you got? Are you guys playing Adelaide? Uh, we're not his. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to sit there. I'm not going to miss a shot again. So Andy, Andy's playing. Andy's playing Adelaide starting on the second of uh, January. And you're you're going to be on his back. You're coaching. I will be there, and then uh, we move to Melbourne, prepare for the Open, and. Uh, and you play Kuyang or no? Uh, I don't know if Kuyong is still there they every don't year. Do a... I, I, don't, I do not know. Okay. And it will also depend uh, how he does. Uh, Adelaide is going to be very strong. So, so it la- will be Djokovic, uh, Medvedev, uh, Rublev, uh, all those guys will be playing. And he could easily play Djokovic first round, play a great match and lose 7-5, 7-6 in the third and have only one match. Mm-hmm. In that case, we will start looking for matches. Yeah. If he loses to Djokovic 7-5 in the third in the semis, we're not going to be looking for matches. Yeah. So, so it's, it's something you have to always evaluate, look at the player, what he looks like, talk to him, see how he feels. He's playing, uh, what's today? Today's Saturday. Next week, he's playing two matches. He's playing Draper and he's playing Evans in Scotland in the Battle of the Brits. So he will have two matches pretty close to there. So, so that's pretty good. See how that goes. And his fitness is... He's at, there. He's there. Sorry, he's, he's there. He's there. He's there. Wow. He's there. He's ready. He can win seven matches. It depends how the matches go, right? I mean, you can be the fittest guy on the tour, and if you play the first three matches over five hours, five sets each, yeah, of course. and then you go in round of 16 <laughs> against the rested guy, at some point that tank is going to empty. But are you going so, to win, you're going to win the tournament. It's not a, it's not a farewell tour. Well, again, it's him who has to say what he's going to do. But uh, I, I saw no. I worked with him for 20 days, late November until December 10th, uh, in Boca, and uh, I saw zero signs that it's a farewell tour. I wouldn't be there if it was. I have a question about the fitness when you're working with a player like Andy. Like, what are the cross-training things that you suggest he does? Because I know he can play as much tennis, but are there other things that... Well, first of all... Like he doesn't lift weights, and everyone's like, how are you so jacked? He does, he does with weights, believe Rafa me. said he doesn't lift weights. Who said that? Rafa, I heard it. Oh, Rafa. Rafa, I don't know. I don't know what Rafa does, but Andy does lift weights. All these guys there have their fitness trainers, and so they listen to them. Uh, there are many ways to, you can do fitness on the court, which we did a lot of, uh, because if you, it's like if you're a great runner, and I put you on a bike, you're going to underperform. Yeah. You have to transfer that fitness from the running to bike and vice versa. Yeah. Same thing, you, you go into the gym, you become very fit, you still have to transfer it on the court. Yeah. If you gain that fitness on the court, you don't have to transfer it, it's there, right? So we did a lot of fitness on the court for that very reason. But they do, they do weights, they do bike, they do Versa climbers, they do... Uh, uh, they do specific, obviously, hip exercises and so on. And so how on. how fit were you compared to how fit were they, how fit these guys are? Um, 
I mean, you, you, you're, you know, obviously notably changed tennis with regards to fitness, with regards to technology. Do you think these guys are fitter, or do you think that you guys were fitter? Well, I, I do not know. I know only certain people's numbers, like Andy's, but I don't have my numbers because we didn't go by numbers. The and, VO2 blood gas yeah, test and all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, we, um, we went a lot by feeling, uh, common sense. We didn't, it was not as sophisticated as it is now, and they're they talking about the red zone and green zone and yellow zone and blue zone and how much time you spend in each zone every week. And then they're talking about the blue zone being very low, let's say heartbeat at 140 beats. Well, our blue zone was go for a jog for an hour and you need to talk to the person next to you. Yeah. If you. If you can't comfortably talk, you're getting too high, slow down. Yeah. So that was our level of technology. Well, they have the hard monitors and all that and they retest and it, it has moved forward just like nutrition has moved forward, just like, uh, uh, just like uh, the weight training has moved forward. Uh, everything has moved forward and it's more sophisticated, more documented than ours was. Is, are the stories true of your, of your exercise regimen, the biking? The... Yeah, probably yes. Don't know what they are, but probably yes. Jay. Have you implemented any difference in strategy with Andy before and after the injury? Is he trying to play shorter points now or be more aggressive? Well, he's trying to be more aggressive, but that's not necessarily because of the injury. There are many other reasons for that. The game has moved forward. You need to be more aggressive these days. If you, if you just stay back, look at Rafa, how he did, for example, at the uh, Torino event where he was passive and they're just killing him now, right? Uh, you, you can't just let the guy push you around the court. Then you have what I said earlier, if you're playing too many five-setters, you're eventually going to run on empty and somebody will beat you. So you can't do that. By being more aggressive, you save energy as well, and so on and so on. So that's not, and of course at 35, that doesn't hurt if the match is uh, 45 minutes shorter, right? Uh, but uh, it's not only the hip, it's a lot of factors why people, and not only Andy, are more aggressive these days. How good is Carlos Alcaraz? He's pretty good. <laughs> and he's only going to get better for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, your young, who's your favorite like, of the young players? I, I don't know that, I, I never look at it that way. Uh, but uh, I know Alcaraz is uh, coached very well. He's, uh, he has a great team around him. Those guys are very, very good at what they do, the Spaniards. And uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero is uh, fantastic. And, and uh, they, uh, they're teaching him well. They're teaching him the right things. They're teaching him uh, all the protocols. And uh, he's extremely polite young man. He's great. Are these Spanish guys better at it than everybody else? <coughs> the Spanish guys do something very good. Uh, French guys do that as well they retained their former pros and plugged them into the programs. There was, when I played juniors, there was a guy called Gabriel Urpi. And he played on the tour maybe two, three years and he wasn't making it uh, to the level he would like to. And then when he retired, they gave him a bunch of 17-year-olds and he started traveling with them and brought a few of them on the tour. And then five years later, he was there with another batch of those guys. So those guys who were not really the top, but uh, they were pretty good and they have worldwide experience. 
to retain those guys, uh, you can't pay them enough money for that experience to work with the juniors. And uh, Spaniards and French are extremely good at it. Italians are pretty good too. Okay. I saw Senna had a question back there. Yes, they're, they're doing pretty good. Australia yeah. is doing pretty good with that as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Peter Luchak is uh, working with them, and I think Boli Masur was involved in the program. Scott Draper is involved in the program. Uh, Rafter was for some time, and, and Patrick Rafter. Yeah. Oh, I, I thought you said who? For asking for, I guess, obvious reasons, but on the junior your development and kind of your path. I mean, when did you? I mean, you're talking about playing Orange Bowl not till you were 15, 16. I think Davidson was the youngest bowl this year. Uh, but like, when did you get serious? How did you think about? I mean, obviously he's got a lot to grow and build and all that. But how did you think about competing, winning, losing, like at a young age versus just getting better every day? And at what point did it, did you go? Okay, I'm, I'm now you know, top junior in the world. Like, there's a pro, there's a pro traject trajectory as part of this as well. My biggest problem was we had seven courts uh, at the club, and my biggest problem was how do I get on the court more? And that that was it. And then. Uh, when uh, I was 15, I came to the Orange Bowl the first time. And uh, at that time, we had one indoor court for our club. And I was getting about two hours a week. And uh, I came here to, and we played uh, Eddie Hare, which was, uh, I'm sorry, we played Sunshine Cup, which then became Eddie Hare, and then it became the t event it's today. Sunshine Cup was, uh, was two-man teams, two singles and a doubles, nations. And uh, I was playing and practicing six to eight hours a day for two months. And uh, then I came back and the guys who were equal with me couldn't compete. And mm -hmm. I realized very quickly that's a huge advantage to be able to play on unlimited resources. I think that's why US and Australia were so good in the 60s and 70s. And uh, because other countries didn't have indoor courts. There were not many indoor courts in Germany, or not enough, not, uh, not in France, not in Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia at that time. Now that, that advantage has changed. All those countries have unlimited courts almost for juniors, so they can play when they're 14, 15, they can play there four hours a day and so on. Did you ever have any interesting interaction with uh, Nick Boletari? Never really thought about it. We, we didn't need it. Uh, but I'm saying, did you ever speak to him? Oh, and yeah. You know, I, did you I, I know knew, him? I knew Nick a little bit. He was doing some TV commentary, and uh, we actually, uh, our kids went to the IMG Academy for golf, so we, we had a place on campus for about three years. So I saw Nick quite a bit, yeah. Um, do you think what he did was special? Well, I think, if I'm correct, he was the first one to have an academy like that, and uh, you put best kids together and uh, have them come. He, Nick was a tremendous motivator and got the guys to compete. Uh, I always say, people ask me, what do you look for when you look at juniors? I said, I look at competitiveness because you, you will not be able to name one player in top 100 who is not viciously competitive. Viciously competitive. Yeah. Um, Davidson, we'll go youngest first. So at like six all or five all in the third set, how do you handle like your mental toughness then? Uh, I never thought it was a problem because you already know by then how you should be playing. 
what you should be doing to win points and what your patterns are and you just go and execute them. What about, how, what about, what about do you ever get tight? Do you ever get nervous? Everybody gets nervous, but you just go and do it. You, that's what you do. I mean, if you can't take the pressure, find another job. Uh, Pete, we're just going to go. There was three people's hands up. So. Uh, just like, just going back on like the different programs and the different countries and coaching and stuff, but like, what is it that you see about men's tennis that is just why it's been in the dumps for 20 years? I know there's some young guys, but like, what's, what's up with our system versus... You mean American men's tennis? Yeah. I'm sorry. sorry, American yeah. tennis. I was going to say... We have the best generation ever. And... So the, women, the women are doing better than the men, but like, I guess the eight American tennis. American what, is your, what are your feelings of American tennis? Well, I think, I think the guys are doing pretty good, actually. They have they're on an uptick. They're on an uptick. Yeah. They're on an uptick. It always goes. But but Americans are winning majors, and it's it's a question. I don't typically. I don't particularly care about the jingo. You know, I don't care about it. But do you have a? Has the has the USTA done a lousy job, or have they done an okay job? I think they have done an okay job. Okay. I think it's difficult to criticize because uh, winning majors, especially in men's tennis, is a lot harder than people think. And uh, everybody, everybody got spoiled by Pete and Andre and uh, and so on, and uh, and uh, they think that okay, it will be coming. I mean, you look at McEnroe with seven, Connors with eight, Andre with eight, Pete with fourteen, and uh, then all of a sudden, for ten years, you have nothing. Well, you don't think the other guys can play? Well, they're a lot better than you think. <laughs> it it just has gotten a lot harder. And part of it is what I was saying that that lag effect of having unlimited courts and uh, California, Texas, Florida, unlimited climate, right, for tennis, um, compared to other countries, that has been negated. So the other countries have more, more popularity in tennis now and they're catching up very quickly. Christian. You know, Florida <laughs> climate, for example, is unbelievable. Today is a crappy day. But last Saturday, I drove from Vero Beach to Boca, did two and a half hour session with Andy and drove back to Vero Beach. And I did not see one cloud in the sky all day. He was here, he's back in the UK. Uh, Christian, question. So my, my question is about Zverev, because I know you coached him for a while. Tread lightly, tread lightly. Also. <laughs> I saw him practice and he this game between, I think, Labor Cup and Labor Cup and Indian Wells last year. And he just seems to be such an ordinary guy, right? Like he's on the court, there was no real coach. He played with some Russian guy with a lot of tattoos. It was also amazing. And I'm sure his father was there, no? He was his helping. Was not there. No? Okay. That's unusual. He, he, oh, you're right. He may have been sick at that time. He just, yeah. he just treated everybody like a servant that was around him, right? <laughs> and I heard some German, obviously, I speak German, right? He was like yelling at one guy, don't try to speak Russian because your Russian sucks. Like, is that his problem, or like, what does it take for him to, to make it? Well, I think it, it's, it's hard, hard to pinpoint anything, what it takes, right? But you look, at, you look at the athletes at the highest level, and very rarely, no matter what sport, hockey, for example, I have seen how drafts are being done and so on and so on, what those scouts look at. And they look at success from the youngest level. And they're saying that if you succeed and have success and you score points in hockey when you're 12 and 14 and 16 and 18, 
you have a chance to do the same thing in NHL. There is no guarantee. And it's very unlikely that if you don't, you're not a big scorer in those levels that you get drafted in NHL and all of a sudden you start scoring. It's just unlikely. And same thing in tennis. You see success early. You very rarely see players who were not a very good junior to come to the top of the game, right? Uh, part of it is the culture of learning how to win and being accustomed to winning and so on and so on. But that last step in all sports, you cannot predict until that person gets there and you see how they handle it. You cannot predict that. And uh, I think Zverev is going to win some majors, uh, providing his leg is okay. I don't know that, how he's going to recover yeah, from that. Uh, but uh, he, he was uh, still young at that time when, uh, when I was coaching him and uh, you're talking. And, uh, sorry. Play, the, I'm sorry, the player's best age right now seems to be between 28 and 30. For us, it used to be 24 to 26. But does he need to listen more? I just want one, one thing, just, just to just caveat here. In 2019, you were on his bag and you won the end of the year championships and he looked like he was never going to lose another tennis match. Thank you. He, 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 he did play well there. He looked so good. He, he did play well there, but you, look at, uh, you can look at that tournament and he played Novak on the second match and got killed. Mm. And then he killed Novak in the finals. Mm. Novak uh, ran out of gas. No, no, interesting thing there is that, uh, uh, number one, when that happened, I think it happened about 17 times that the two players played again in mm. the championships. Mm. And the guy who lost won nine times. So he, it's about even. He was serving so well. He was serving really well. He didn't miss and so on and so on. But, and he, but he, he never really... He was pretty aggressive, just like I was with McEnroe, right? <laughs> And he was forcing Novak to do more than he really wanted to do in that match. And uh, Novak missed some. I just remember uh, being there. But, we were, uh, you know, does he need to listen more? Um, I, I can't say that he didn't listen when I was with him. Uh, I don't know what the situation is now. I'm removed from that camp, so I really don't know. But uh, I, I think if he, with that guy with serve like that, he can have matches when he's untouchable because all it takes is four big forehands and it's six four. Yeah. Alex. What's um, the best slam to be at and to play at? What was Australia, favorite? by far. It was always nice to get out of the cold. We used to live in Greenwich, Connecticut, to get yeah. out of the cold. Is that your favorite tournament? It's hard. Like, uh, at first, my favorite was uh, red clay, and then became hard court. Did you grow up on clay? Yeah, red clay. Yeah, I didn't play on hard court till I came here when I was 15 for the first uh, trip to Miami or to Florida. So wait, hold on. So, so, I, you told a story. You were coming home from a. This is we're gonna we'll end here, but you told a story that I had to cut out of my show. Um, was it that X-rated? You were <laughs> no, but I just couldn't work it in. But you were driving home from. Groton, Connecticut, you'd played a tournament and you told the story of the submarine. Yeah. So. This is a golf story, but it's just too good not to share. There is. A, in, how many of you know a little bit of geography of Connecticut? Okay. So, so Groton is north, northeast and they make nuclear subs, right? 
There is a public golf course called Chenecoset. It's designed by Donald Ross, one of the famous designers. Uh, Pfizer, which has headquarters there, took three holes and built a parking lot on those holes because it belonged to the city. But they bought land across the road, across the street, which is on the water, and hired a guy called Silva, who is a Donald Ross kind of follower, to design three holes. And when you play, you can't tell that it's not Donald Ross. It's that good. And we, first time I played it, I'm playing with the guys from the club. And uh, I'm standing on the 17th tee and they say, look behind you, look behind you. They have been screwing with me all day. They say, hit it there. And I hit it there and it was bunker and stuff like that, right? So I know they're screwing <laughs> with me again. So, but as I hit the three wood of that hole, lay up and as I'm picking up my tee, I kind of look behind me so they don't see it. Nuclear sub rolling out. That thing was so quiet. And so big, it was unbelievable. It surfaced, right? It was, it was all the way up. It was just going out. They can't go deep there. And, uh, about as those cars? And I have seen it three or four more times. Is your golf as good as... Um, My tennis? No. Well, is your golf as good as what people say about it? Are you a good golfer? I don't know what people say. Are you a scratch? I'm about a two now. Two. Can you beat my <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> are, are you a big money player? No. You're not a big no. money player. No. Your no. kids played, right? Uh, three of the girls played in college. The they played college. They uh, they grew up with the Cordas, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, last last two minutes, and that is it. Good. All right, well. And uh, let's say thank you to Santa for uh, organizing this. Thank you guys in the club. Thank you. Let me, let me say thank you guys. It was, uh, it was fun being with you here. Hopefully uh, you can remember something I said and uh, implement it in your game and uh, it helps you. So enjoy the tennis. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. My pleasure. Huge thank you to Yvonne Lendl. Thank you to all of the great players that attended the event and asked tremendous questions. And thank you to Jerry Solomon and Cena Hackler-Jackson for their assistance. Huge thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com. And thank you to Diodora. See them at Diodora.com. And be on the lookout as there will be more to come. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. <laughs>